0: All right, open up your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And I think I'll open up and go there too. Psalm 73. It's a psalm about, I entitled it, Riches Can Be Deceitful. Riches Can Be Deceitful. This psalm is a psalm of trust. With some aspects of the wisdom psalms. And the psalm is kind of unusual, if you will. Because it tells the the story about the psalmist's struggle with envy, doubts, and his faith in God. But through his struggles, the psalmist Asaph learned to trust in God. And you see, that's that's, that's what should happen when you go through struggles. You know, it should draw us to God. He doesn't give us struggle so that, you know, he can, you know, knock us on our back. It's to bring us to our knees. The arrangement of the psalm is as follows. First, the temptation to be envious of the wicked, verses 1 through 3. Second, a description of the wicked, in verses 4 through 14. Third, the realization that the end of the wicked is the balancing factor, verses 15 through 20. Fourth, the psalmist's regret over his uncertainty, verses 21 through 24. Fifth, a renewed resolve to trust in God alone, verses, 21, uh, uh, verses 25 through 26. Uh, number six, the destruction of the wicked in verse 27, and a renewed trust in God in verse 28. This is the, uh, this is the, book, of, uh, the book three of the psalms. This is book three of the Psalms, starting with Psalms 73 through 89. And these particular Psalms celebrate the sovereignty of God. God's hand in history, God's faithfulness, and God's covenant with David. And these Psalms remind us that our worship of the sovereign, almighty God, it should be continual. It should be at all times, and it should be through all circumstances. The theme of the psalm is the temporary prosperity of the wicked and the lasting rewards of the righteous. We should live holy lives and trust God for our future rewards. The author is Asaph. Now, Asaph was a leader of one of the temple choirs, First Chronicles 25.1. The first 20 verses have two strong themes running through them. First, the wicked prosper leaving godly people wondering why they bother to be good. And secondly, the wealth of the wicked looks so inviting that faithful people may wish that they could trade places with them. But these two themes come to surprising ends. For the one, the wealth of the wicked suddenly loses its power at death. and we have heard the term you know, death is the, is the great equalizer. You know, All that power, that so-called power that they have because of their wealth, their money, whatever it might be, Uh, Man, it's, it's nothing when it comes to judgment time. And on the other hand, the rewards for the godly, those suddenly take on eternal value. Now they're meaningful if they weren't before. What seemed like wealth is now waste, and what seemed worthless now lasts forever. Don't wish, and we said this in this morning's study, don't wish you could trade places with evil with evil people, that is, to get their wealth. And, 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 I, and I read a quote by Jim Carrey, the actor, the other day, and I normally don't quote these folks, but it, it pertains to what's being said here because a lot of times we think wealth, man, if, if I was wealthy and I had money or whatever it might be, you know, life would be easier. Jim Carrey said, and I'm going on memory, so forgive me, he said, everybody should be rich, and have and experience all that they can. He says, because they'll find find out it's not all that there is. Obviously, a very unhappy man. Wealth, experience, we saw that in Solomon, in Ecclesiastes. One day, the wicked are going to want to trade places with you, and the eternal wealth that you have, Asaph was one of the members of the tribe of Levi that David put in charge of the worship music that was done at the Tent of Meeting before Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 6.39. In time, he seems to have become the leader of this group and then the father of a whole family of temple musicians. David gave some of his psalms to Asaph, and they were performed by him and his associates according to 1 Chronicles 16.7. Asaph also wrote psalms himself. And one of these psalms being Psalm 50. The other psalms that are said to be his are Psalms 73 through 83. Now, one thing about Asaph is that he was honest about himself. He was honest about what he saw around him, and he told it like it was. What he saw and what bothered him so much is that the wicked seemed to do really well in life. They seemed to get along pretty well in this world, a lot better than the godly. And this isn't what we would expect in a just universe that's led by a sovereign God. We would probably, if we were in control, now we'd, we'd, we'd wipe out the wicked and we'd bless those that are good. Now we always have that question. So, if God is in control of things, then the plans of the wicked shouldn't come to pass. That would be our thinking, I believe, for most of us. They should even be punished in front of everybody. And only the godly prosper but that was asap's problem because you see that's not the way that's not the way things turned out that's not what he saw and you know what? we don't see it either do we we see crooks we see the ungodly doing well and getting rich in this life we see totally immoral people vile rock musicians and music uh, movie stars who are paid big bucks and people are seek after them, they become the spokesmen of politicians today they become the spokesman of oh of all that's right and all that needs to be done you know again, which they know nothing about anything and yet they're sought after even criminals get rich selling their crime stories so why is it that wicked people prosper and the godly have such a hard time in life? We need to remember. If the ungodly don't get saved, this is all, all the heaven they're ever going to experience right here on earth. This is it for them. This is the same question that Asaph asked in this psalm. Why do the wicked prosper? And why do the godly have such a hard time? We also find that question asked in the book of Job. And in each of these places, a different answer is suggested. In Psalm 37, the answer is to wait and to trust God, believing that in the end, wrong is going to be made right, even in this world. Listen to what David said in Psalm 37, 1 and 2. He said, do not fret because of evildoers. Notice, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, because they shall soon be cut down like grass, and they will wither as the green herb. Now in Job's place, in Job, He's not given an answer as to why the wicked prosper. It's simply because God is in heaven and seated on the throne. And we don't dare and we can't ask questions or we can't question God's ways. God does not know, does not owe any man an explanation for what and why things are. God makes this point in in Job chapters 38 through 41 demanding in a strong and thoroughly in-depth way whether Job can explain just one of God's many works of creation. Not to mention God's way with the righteous and the wicked. Job couldn't answer the Lord's questions. And Job finally had to confess, You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I, Job, have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. You ask, Job says, you ask God, who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Job says, it's me, it's I. And I was talking about things I didn't understand, things far too wonderful for me. And in giving the answers as to why the wicked prosper, this psalm probably gives us the most insightful answer in all of the books and literature ever written. And the reason is is that Asaph is so honest in his questioning asaph looks at the world with open eyes and then he comes to god for the answer to the problem and psalm 73 here is an example of faith honestly doubting what it believes now it's not that kind of boastful doubting that we often hear in the conversation of proud people because some people think it's clever to be able to raise questions that people can't that, that the people of god can't answer oh they love stumping christians and when they give you an answer, you know, they're all proudful and, and, you know, and it's, oh, I gotcha. But that's not what Asaph is doing here. The proof of this is in the point that he starts out with, notice in verse 1. And he says, truly, God is good. Truly, God is good. Let's look at now verses 1 through 3 of, chapter, of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And here's why. Because I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These verses are going to record Asaph's personal testimony of how he was shaken loose from that basic belief for a time that God is good. But the goodness of God is a truth. And for that reason, Asaph starts out by speaking of that truth, and he finishes by speaking of it as well. Asaph starts out in verse 1 with, God is good. God is good. That's the basic, that's the truth. And it ends with a similar testimony. But you see, Asaph did have some doubts. And if we will be honest with ourselves, we probably have doubts as well. Even though he said in verse 1 that truly God is good, he also confesses that this wasn't always a definite conviction with himself. And here he contrasts himself with God, saying, but as for me. Now he's saying, God is good, but as for me, I'm not so good. God is good, he's pure. And admits, Asaph admits his personal corruption because of impure thoughts, and he admits that for a while at least, he says in verse 2, man, my feet almost stumbled. Why? Why? Because he says, I was envious of the boastful. He, he said, when, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, man, I almost slipped, I almost stumbled. Which goes against, when again, seeing the prosperity of the wicked, it goes against what we think should happen to the wicked. That goodness should be rewarded and wickedness should be punished. That's what makes sense to us. But you see, that's just one side of the problem and probably the least important. Asaph's real problem, he confesses here, was that he had become envious of the wicked. And as a result, verse 2 says, he almost slipped. In other words, his problem was that he was comparing their health, their wealth and prosperity with his lack of prosperity. And he was resentful for it. He was resentful because God would let it go on. And, you know, how many times do we look back at the evil and our world and say, Lord, when are you going to do something? When are you going to step in? When are you going to take care of the wicked? Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. All of Paul's resources for contentment were from within. We also read in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8-9, through 9, Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. This text says to be content with the basics, to be content with what we need, to be content with what God gives us. This text is not saying it's wrong to be rich. But it's emphasizing that many of our wants are not necessities. And what is Philippians 4, 7? God says, Paul said that God will supply all of our needs. (laughs) Not all of our wants. But He will supply all of our needs, our necessities. And it's not necessary to be rich in life to have all that you really need. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Yet true godliness with contentment. Is itself great gain or great wealth. Howard Hendricks said this comparison is carnality. Think about that. When you start comparing your life with somebody else's or what you have and, and, and what others have, that's carnality. And that's where our problem lies as well. And we have to admit it and be honest. It's that God isn't treating us the way that we think He should. Lord, I'm reading, I'm going to church, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm doing all of the things I'm supposed to do, and yet, you're not treating me, you're not treating me good, Lord. And everybody else seems to be doing better than I am. And, and that we have to struggle for a living, while the wicked, man, they don't have any problems that we can see of. You see, our problem is envy, and envy is criticizing God, and envy is sin. Let's look at verses 4-11 through now. Asaph says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, His people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? Asaph now in verses 4-11, through 11, he describes what he sees. He's describing the wicked. He's being honest. He's being honest about his sin. And the next thing he tells us is what he thought that he observed about the wicked during this time of his spiritual wavering. He says in these verses, you know, I look at the wicked and they don't seem to have any problems at all. And they seem to be getting along fine. They seem to have good health. And they seem to thrive on pride. Other people envy him. They're wooed by other people, even to the point of being able to dismiss God. What does he know? As dismissing God as having any importance for their lives. The wicked seem to get away with their wickedness. And and, and nothing's done about it, God. They even brag about it. You see, that's what bothers him so much. It's like, you know, the, the saying, good guys finish last. When we're envying other people, we find situations like this frustrating. And we wish God would do something. Lord, wipe them out. Asaph kind of sums up up everything. Uh, He's told us so far about the wicked. Notice in verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. He says, this is what the wicked are like. Man, they're always happy so happy-go-lucky. They don't seem to have a care or problem in the world, and they just get richer and richer, and life gets easier and easier. Life just seems to get better and better for the wicked. Look at verses 13 and 14. Surely, oh, look at Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. And I've washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And because he's come to this conclusion, though it's wrong, he feels like, what's the point of living a godly life? And I have heard that throughout the years. I tried Christianity once. It didn't work for me. You know, it was like, well, you know, I heard that if you, you came to the Lord, all your problems would be solved and all everything would be wonderful, and it just wasn't that way. What's the point of being a Christian if God doesn't, you know, basically do what I think He should do? Or as we would say, what's the point of being a Christian if those who aren't Christians get what I want, but I don't? Why should I be a Christian if God doesn't, you know, treat me better than anybody else? And on top of not getting what I want, I am having a whole bunch of other problems. They never seem to stop. And it seems the better I do, the worse things get in my life. It's like I'm being punished for being good. Now we have to admit, many of us at times probably have felt the same way. Because we start comparing our situation with the wicked. And this is what happens when you take your eyes off of the Lord and you begin to focus on others. But even as low as Asaph got here, as low as Asaph is feeling here, and he's all bummed out by what he sees, and he's jealous of those that he shouldn't be, he's still jealous. But you know what? He's still a a, a believing child of God. Look at what he says in verse 15. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. This, This verse really spoke to me. What he's saying here, if I would have shared my opinion, if I would have shared what I felt in my heart out loud, I would have stumbled my brothers and sisters around me. Understand how important this thing is that he's saying here. If I had really spoken this way, I would have been a traitor to your people, God. You see, he didn't say out loud what he was thinking or what he was feeling in his heart. Because he didn't want to stumble or harm the faith of the other people, those who were your, are your children, Lord. Remember what Paul said, man, I will not do anything that will stumble my weaker brother. And what a lot of people don't understand, and we're really talking about Christians. You can do a lot of damage to young, impressionable believers when you start to complain about what what goes on in the church. When you start talking bad about the leaders or the pastor or the people, those who are coming to be to be taught by the Lord and to to receive what the Lord has from them, and you begin to to to, to you know complain about what you're feeling or, or what you think shouldn't, shouldn't be happening. You may be right, but you know what? Take it to God. Because you may just stumble that, that, that weaker brother or sister, that new babe in Christ that is coming to hear the Word of God. When you start to put down leaders or policies, the best thing to do is keep your negativity to yourself and take it to God in prayer. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm thirty-eight, twelve through fourteen. Those who also seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But he says, "I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I'm like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus, I am like a man who does not hear and whose in, in whose mouth is no response." The psalmist pretended like, you know what? I, I'm not hearing it. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to say anything about it. Asaph teaches us through what he went through that having doubts is not contrary with responsible Christian living. We have our doubts. What he said may have been true. In verse 2, he said, I almost slipped. But he didn't. Or at least not yet. Because you see, he was still being a responsible leader of God's people. Look at verses 16 through 17. He said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until, notice, here's where it turns around, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood therein. Speaking of the wicked. Now all of a sudden, during Asaph's flip-flopping unbelief and doubt, he comes to a turning point. He's almost ready to go down for the count. But what does he do? And this is the lesson that we should all learn here. He went into the sanctuary of God. And there he comes to learn about and understand what's going on or what's going to happen to the wicked in the end. Remember, it's not about what's going on now. It's what's going to happen in the end. When their life on earth is over. The words therein, speaking about the wicked, it speaks of their final judgment that they will perish apart from God in hell. But what's the connection between this important insight and Asas going into the sanctuary? Well, there's a few different ideas. One, I think that when he went into the sanctuary and he sat quietly before God, when we go before God and we quit speaking, when we quit throwing all of these questions at God. Why this? Why that? How come? And just sit quietly before him. He began to see everything, but from God's perspective, through God's eyes, not from his own limited and sinful perspective, worldview. He came to see that the lives of the wicked and also his own life from the eternal's perspective, from God's eyes. And he totally changed his position. A total turnaround in the way he saw things. You see, that's what happens when you worship God. You see things differently. Worshiping God puts the focus back on God and it takes it off of you or your problem or others putting God in the center of your outlook. Warren Wearsley said, forget about the outlook and try the uplook. Quit looking at everything and everybody else and look up. Fix your eyes on the Lord. That will change everything. And this is so important because it's only when God is at the center of your life, when He's the only one at the center of your vision, that we see things the way they really are. We see things the way they really the, the, the way they should be seen. And Jesus said, that's why He said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. When we put God at the center of our lives, it brings everything back into focus. It gives us the right perspective. It sets our behavior and our thinking straight. And then verses 18 through 26 shows us what happens when we are Christ-centered. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. He said, surely you set them, them, the wicked, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought down to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. First of all, there will be a new knowledge of where the wicked will end up. The wicked seem secure because they're doing so well. But they're the ones who are really on shaky ground. All God has to do is give the world a jolt and down they're going to come. Down they're going to fall off of their not so high, high tower down to their destruction. And after looking at those that he once envied through the eyes of the Lord, he now sees that they're no more stable than a dream. No more stable than a dream. And you know, many times, have, many times when you've had a dream, when you wake up, you can't remember what it was. Dreams come and go in a flash. They vanish, they seem to vanish the minute we open our eyes. You know, and I remember having a lot of dreams in my life, but most of them I can't remember. You know, after I wake up. Verses 21 through 22. He says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant i was like a beast before you notice his notice his his different attitude secondly he now has a new knowledge about how things are concerning himself he realized now that when he questioned god about how he handed other people's lives he says that wasn't really very smart he says i was so foolish and ignorant i was like an animal he said you know i i I just I, i acted foolish lord I realized that when I, when I questioned you, Lord, about how other people's lives, man, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a senseless beast to you. Now, on Asaph's part, this is a deep insight into the, the inner nature of things. In other words, to see things as they really are. Because, you see, whenever we fail to learn from God, and instead we start trusting our own opposite judgments on anything, we start to think like animals. We have no real awareness of God. And then we start to act like animals as well. Job ended up confessing that God's ways were totally beyond his understanding. And he hated his, his prize so much, and he repented of it. Let's look at verses 23 through 26 now. Asaph goes on, he says, nevertheless, notice, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God, notice, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My heart and my flesh fail, but God, you are my strength and my portion forever. Here's the third thing that we see. After he went into the sanctuary, he got back on track. The right track in his thinking. And he now realizes that God has been with him all along. And he's for sure now that God always will be with him. Besides, he saw that this was a true blessing against which the worldly blessings of the wicked, they're like nothing to compare to it. These verses are the high point of Asaph's testimony. And they're filled with some of the best words of true spirituality in all the Bible. And they should be memorized by all Christians. Listen to what he says again in verses 23 through 26. He says, yet I still belong to you, Lord. You're holding my right hand. You will keep on guiding me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom do I have in heaven? Who do I have in heaven but you, Lord? I love what he says, I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit might grow weak, but God, you remain the strength of my heart. You are mine forever. I love Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. From birth to death, God has us continually in his grip. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me, God, from birth, who have been carried from the womb even to your old age. I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and will bear, even I will carry, and I will deliver you. From birth to the grave, God carries us, and in between. A lot of Christians have gone through what Asaph went through. Admitting in the end that it, what it all boils down to is that what really matters for us is God. Solomon came that, to that conclusion in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen and 14. He said, here's my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is the duty of man. This is the duty of every person. You see, the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord is that attitude of reverence and awe that His people show to Him because they love Him and they respect His power and His greatness. The person who fears the Lord will pay attention to his word, and they'll obey it. Or he or she will not tempt the Lord by deliberately disobeying or playing with sin. An unholy fear makes people run away from God. But a holy fear brings them to their knees in loving submission to God. Oswald Chambers said this, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. The prophet Isaiah says perfectly in Isaiah 8.13, The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow or worship or consider holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. And then the psalmist describes such a man in Psalm 112. Let me read Psalm 112 to you. It's short. It says... Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Here's all, we God is all that we have. But you know what? He's all that we need. He takes care of us here and afterward. He's going to take us into glory. Verse 24 here says. Let's look at now, finish with verses 27 through 28. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all of those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all of your works. Asaph ends the psalm by saying what he said at the beginning. That the wicked will perish in the end and that God will will be with the righteous and they will be with him. And then Asaph says in verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God. What an understatement. It is good for me to draw near to God. Asaph dwells upon the wonderful name of the Lord Jehovah. And he says it's the basis of his faith. Faith is wisdom. And it's key to the mysteries of God. It's the answer to confusion and the compass in the storm. It leads us when we're confused and and don't seem to have any uh, direction. Trust and you'll know. He says that I may declare all of your works. He who believes will understand, and so they will be able to teach. In closing, earlier, Asaph hesitated to publicize or to share outwardly or aloud what was going on in his heart because he was afraid he might stumble some of God's children. But notice now at the end, he says, man, he he has no hesitation about making known the goodness of God to everyone. The more God's ways are known, the more they're admired. And he who's ready to believe the goodness of God will always see fresh goodness to believe in. And the one who's willing to talk about the work of God will never be quiet. Because you know what? They have nothing to say. Because God's wonders are many. And God's wonders are countless. They Again, the one who's willing to talk about the works of God will never be quiet. Because they, they don't have anything to say. But because they have many wonders that they can share with other people. We, I mean we really shouldn't have a problem sharing with others about our God. Because there's so many things that we can share. Just sharing what He's done for us. Just sharing who He is in our life. Very simple. And again, so much to share. Father, we come before You, Lord. We thank You for this psalm. We thank You for Asaph and sharing his heart with us, Lord. Father, being open and honest about what was going on in his heart, Lord. Helping us to see, God, that we're very much like Asaph at times, Lord. Focusing on the wrong thing, Lord. Envying the wrong things, Father. Whether it's people or or material things, Father. Father, casting our doubts before you. Lord, help us to, Father, when we come to that place in our life, when, we're, we, when we have more doubts than knowledge of the Most High, help us to go into the sanctuary and sit quietly before You, Lord. And that sanctuary may be our church, it may be our bedroom, it might be a hospital room. Wherever we can be alone with You, Lord. May we turn it into a sanctuary. And may we quietly sit before you and allow you to speak to our hearts, Lord. Allow you to have your way in our thoughts and in our emotions, Lord. And Father, to look at things truthfully, Lord. This is not my home. Lord, my blessings, though I I receive many here, Man, the final and the best blessings are going to be when I'm with you, Lord. And the wicked, the best that they can experience will be here apart from you, Lord. And one day they will perish. And they will be cast into outer darkness, the Bible says. Complete separation from you, Father. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, God. Pain and suffering, the pangs of hell. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. We do pray that you would come to.